So, we're gonna do a tiny bit of recap and get you back to where we are because it's been a couple of weird weeks. Some people gone, some people not. But basically, Pole, Jill Pole, right, and used to scrub and puddle glum have been down in the cave, right? They got down to the cave, they fell through the words that were written in the stones, which really were just actually cut out of the ground, basically, in the rock, okay? Um, they fell through, and that was one of the signs that Jill was supposed to remember, right? They went into the castle of Harfang, well, they ran away, they got out of it, they went through uh, and fell down into the underworld, kind of by accident. And yet, what we really know is even though Jill messed up the signs and she didn't do what she was always supposed to do, and it seemed like it was by accident, Aslan already knew, right? He knew what would happen when he sent them. And it's the very same way with God. As we look at this adventure and see this adventure wrap up, it is not without the knowledge of Aslan. And so, why are Jill and Eustace sent? Can't Aslan just free Prince Rillian? He could. So, why, though? Because Aslan's lazy? No, because No, because they're going to learn as well, yeah. right? The way God very often, and not every time, but very often God works through humans to do things. He chooses to move the hearts of humans because ultimately that's what this world was about. To create a world for his, crea his creation, his, his most loved creation, which are humans. And I say most loved in that when he created that world, he understood that we would fall. He knew it before we ever created the earth. Which is a little mind-boggling, but yet still he chose to create it. And he chose and knew that he would die. He knew his blood would be necessary to forgive us and redeem us. And he also knew that most, many, and probably most humans would reject him. But he came to redeem those who would say, I will kneel to you. I will listen to you. I will believe in you. And so God has chosen to, to move the human race and all of us connect. And I, I picture it as a bunch of gears and wheels where we all sort of mesh with a whole bunch of other lives, right? throughout places that we go to school and that we work in our lives and our homes 
and our churches and all the things, our, our lives kind of mesh together while meshing with other people. We are many teeth on each gear, right? But as we mesh, there is a perfect connection that God says, you connect with this person and you connect with this person as well. You are that gear that when you connect with them, you also go around and connect with them. You're an important piece of how God's plan comes to fruition. Not because he needs you, but because he wants you. He wants to use you. God could move things and wipe things out and change things. He could kill people here and there and everywhere he wanted to. And at times in history, he has done, uh, I'll say, supernatural things like that. And yet, God chooses most of the time to work supernaturally in your heart. So you will decide. Because it is God's ultimate goal to get you closer to Him. And any way He can do that and use you to, use, to connect another person who connects another person who connects another person, then God's power is truly revealed in that. And that He can take a weak, imperfect instrument and do a mighty job. There are amazing surgeons out there. But there are not many surgeons who will say, eh, I'll pick up that rusty old scalpel. And I don't need much more than my bare hands to get this done. We look for people to have as fine and perfect of an instrument as we can, right? Because we understand there's a limit to what we as a human can do and create. With rough tools, we get a rough job. But God, using us as a rough tool that doesn't quite, isn't perfect, we don't have a lot of sharp edges, we're not fit hardly to be a tool, God says, I'll use them. I'll make them work perfectly in this. And so, it's one big piece of why Jill? Why Jill? And why Eustace? Because God's plan is to change them while doing a great and mighty deed with them. And they kind of just are fumbling along. Right? They fell into the hole. They did five bad choices in a row and then fell into the hole. Right? <laughs> it wasn't like they said, we're headed down that hole. We're going to that place. They kind of fumbled around and then, whoa, fell down the hole. Running from what they should have never even gone into, the castle where they were tempted. And they got this close to being eaten by the giants, okay? So, God... All because of the serpent. All because of, well, the serpent originally, yes. And we will talk about that. We will get to that. Absolutely. Yep, the lady of the green kirtle. So, here is... We're back into the hole. They fell in the hole, right? They're down in the hole. They find the Black Knight. The Lady of the Green Kirtle is not anywhere to be seen at the time. She's off working with the Earthmen, who she has enslaved, 
to build and create this underground tunnel system to get them up to the surface so that she can take Prince Rillian, whom she has enslaved as well, and with him take over a land and, and rule their inhabitants by evil. All right, and she has twisted him. Remember, he went on his, the first time he ever went to sea, he was going to look where his mother was killed, right? And he was distracted by how his mother got killed and he could think of nothing else. And then he met this beautiful lady who seduced him to come with her. And eventually she brought him willingly he went back and back and back and back. And anytime anybody said something about it, he snapped at him. What do you know about this? You ruined my chances, right? When that Lord went with him to go check out what danger was lurking around the corner, she whisked away quickly and he snapped at him. Now that's on your way down. When you let things get to you, you let things uh, things make you prickly and hard to get along with, watch out, because you may not be doing the right thing. Okay? Just like Prince Rillian, it may be something that's making you have that attitude, like Prince Rillian had that bad attitude. Don't you come near me. I'm doing this on my own. I know what I want to do. And really, it was his downfall, and he was intended to go straight there, okay? And so, he becomes enslaved, because he does it enough where he is slave to this woman. We've talked about things that can enslave you. We've talked about all sorts of things in this world, and anything can enslave your mind and your heart. A video game. video game can do it, absolutely. If you are so focused on that game and that becomes the most important thing very easily all right and it doesn't have to be that it could be anything it could be a substance it could be an attitude it could be many things that you go back to it could be anything yes anything you focus on the world full of things so down they are, they meet Prince Rillian, who is, Eve, even every single night, goes into this chair. He believes he's under a spell when he gets in the chair, because that's what the witch has told him. All right, that's what the Lady of the Green Curl has told him. When you get in this chair, it's the safest place for you to be. I lock you in there, because you go crazy. And then once the fits are over, I let you out, and you're normal again. But really, the whole thing is twisted upside down. It's the only time he's in his right mind. All the rest of the time, he's under the spell, under the influence of her and his addiction to something. So you call him the knight in the black armor, isn't he? Absolutely. He's the knight in the black armor. And so, with that, his Puddleglum and Jill and Eustace go in there, he's tied into his chair, and he asks them, stay with me during this. So they stay with him, and finally, one of the signs that she finally gets 
in the name of Aslan, let me go, because he's in his right mind at that moment. And they all look and say, well, it's just the words of the sign. Well, I, I don't want to do it, right? This is, this is frightening to do what God's actually asked to do. Yes, sometimes God will challenge you in your faith. Any step in faith will oftentimes bring about uncertainty. You don't know what's on the other side of that step of faith. But when you know God asks you and you take that step, that's the point, right? Faith. It's not that you know how the outcome's going to be. It's that you trust God when he says, go do this. And I have had that where I've gone to jobs and done things. Jobs where I'm like, this is a big leap for me to go and do this, to come to this place, to go to that place, to go, why am I even doing this? And prayed about it, and prayed about it, and there was a time, you know, it might have been a week or two weeks or sometimes longer, um, where God gave me peace about it, where he said, this is it. You do it. And I had so many questions. Well, what about this? What about... This is it. And it, you could walk in and say, all right, whatever this is, there's a reason. And every place I've been often was a step of that faith. And there have been things God asked me to do specifically that I have not even wanted to do, but have done it. Sometimes it took me time to get there. God was patient with me. And other times, I wanted to do it quickly, and I did it quickly. But every time, especially when I was a little bit more unsure about where it would lead me or what it could be, I had to put a little more trust that God had it in his hands. I had to trust him. Even when my brain said, no, don't do this. Why would you do this? I was sure, and I prayed, and I asked, and a very clear answer came to do this. And when I finally did those steps, God said, absolutely, that's what I wanted you to do. Let's move on. But it was that step of faith. He's already ready for you to keep going. And you're like, well, I don't know, can I do this? So each one of these steps of faith we've seen, and we've seen, and we've seen. So finally they let him go, and out they go. The queen comes in and lulls them back into believing that there isn't even an Arnia. There isn't a sunshine. There isn't anything. And Prince Rillian is right back into it. And it is the very hardest time when you're breaking something you're addicted to, to not go right back to it. Because your, your mind and body have learned to respond this way. It's easy to go back and back and back and fall and feel like, I'm a failure, I'll never get this. But if you keep getting back up and going back and trusting God again and again and again and again, and it may take weeks, months, even years, and it's hard to go through that, but each little step, if you continue to get back up and go to God, ask for forgiveness and keep going, He will bless that in you. All right, Even when you have doubts, because a lot of those doubts are little steps of faith that He gets you to say, didn't I tell you I'd forgive you? 
Didn't I tell you that I would help you? Didn't you know you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? And so we learn, step by step. And so did Rillian, and so did Jill, and Puddleglum, and Eustace, okay? And so off they go. Finally, who saves the day but old Puddleglum, right? He has a moment of clarity in which he sticks his webbed foot in the fire. Burns it. On purpose. Because what happens when you stick your foot in the fire? What's going to happen to you? It burns. It burns and? It hurts. And there is nothing like pain in this life to bring about a bit of reality. And sense. And sense. You all of a sudden know what's real and true, right? Hey, this is real and it really hurts. Wow. That hurts. Yes. So anything, and that probably took you right out of that video game, right? You just made you think. So, and that's the point, is that when we are in this life, there are oftentimes painful things, but they bring the deepest sense of God and reality. When someone passes away that is close to you, it is nothing that God is going up there and saying, well, i got to get rid of this one and that one and this one. But when the time comes, he often uses those experiences in your life, and they bring real pain, right? But when you have real pain and you're not floating along in life and everything seems beautiful and wonderful in this world, all of a sudden you lose a person. What becomes important when that person is gone? Is God real? And where did they go? Right? That becomes your most important question in your mind. Am I going to see them again? And very soberly, you can think about the reality of God, the reality of heaven. What do you really believe? Are you there? When you pass, will you be with that person? All right? So, though it is a painful experience, just like Puddle Plum, right? On purpose puts a little pain in his life. No pain, no gain kind of thing, right? He puts that in there, and then all of a sudden, all the things in the dreamy world that she's trying to cast the spell around him, they don't matter. Because that hurts. And that's real. And my mind is clearer now. Right? So oftentimes they bring clarity. I'm not wishing anything sad or hard on anybody. But in reality, sometimes it is the only thing that comes out. And when you hear about people who have to hit rock bottom, and they say, oh, they got to hit rock bottom before they'll ever look to God, sometimes it's true. Because we oftentimes just won't listen until the pain is enough. Something you learn when you deal with horses, and I learned this in horseshoeing school, is you are not looking to hurt an animal. 
I never was looking to hurt an animal. But there's a reality in that I am not as big as a horse. Though I might feel like it some days, I am not as big as a horse. A horse can be a thousand pounds, it can be 1,200 pounds. There were, there were one or two pairs of draft horses that were over 2,000 pounds apiece. They are big horses. That sounds like talking about a bull. You can tell them, hey, I want you to move. And if they don't want to, they don't. And if they're a little bit cranky that day, or they haven't been trained correctly, they will not respond to your words. You can be as kind and nice to them as you want, and they don't care. And truthfully, the only thing you can get them to do, if you want them just to step aside like this, if there's a 2,000 pound horse here, and you want them to move six inches this way, how do you do it? You could run into them. You don't even feel it. You could push your hand on them. If they don't want to move, they're not going to move. But how they really respond is typically something that gives them slight discomfort. Okay? And so, you might take your finger and press hard up into the belly or something, a spot where, and then they're like, that's annoying, and they step and it's gone. Because you don't follow them with it, you stop when they move, and all of a sudden they say, huh, when I move, that went away, and their brain learns it. It's not about pain, but it's about helping them understand they need to move. I need you to move because I'm trying to help you with this, but you will kill me if you don't, right? So we'll move like this, with a little pressure, and sometimes that's how God does it in our lives. A little pressure until you say, ooh, that's uncomfortable. And you take a step. And God says, that's the step I want you to take, right? I needed you to go there. So we learn from that as humans, just as animals. Okay? Learn from that. It's pressure, but it's not just weight. Because they can take hundreds and hundreds of pounds of weight, and you can't give that with your arm. A little bit of discomfort. Not to the point of inflicting pain where they hurt, but you're, you press. Now, sometimes you're pressing harder than not, but you press until they move. And oftentimes they'll say, I'd rather just take a step than feel that pressure. And sometimes a horse can turn and in the face. Well, they could. They could. And there are those types of horses as well. So... All right, so that is the way that God teaches us, oftentimes. So, up they come. They've defeated the, the witch, the lady of the green kirtle. She, after she is defeated with Puddle Glum, Rillian takes the sword that he had chopped the, the silver cherub with and kills her. She turns into a snake and he kills her, all right? She reveals her true nature. And then out they go, because the underpinnings of that realm all of a sudden are crumbling and falling apart. They run through, and it's almost nearly deserted. All the slaves have gone or have found their way out, 
one way or another. They don't want to be around her. All those earthmen. They go and they go and they go and there's a few that still have stuck around because they like the things left on the table or they, they're kind of distracted about it. But off they, excuse me, off they go. Or they drop something or they're looking for something. And they've, they get actually horses, two horses, and they get their way all the way up till they find like this spot. And then there's like this little teeny hole in the ground. So here is two horses and three people. Here's horses behind them. Isn't that nice? Horses. And then Jill is the smallest, so she goes up first. When she gets to the very tip top, she pushes stuff out of the way, sticks her head up, and she's a little skinny girl, and so she pushes her way up and out, and they pull her the rest of the way, she realizes she's made it to Narnia, to the surface. Now they have gone through cavern after cavern after cavern after cavern after cavern, filled with nothing but darkness, maybe some, some greenish hue of a light, and that's all they see through this hole, another little bit of greenish hue, because it's the middle of the night. And the moon is out. And there are a bunch of fawns and others that are dancing around a fire, having a festival. She pops out, gets stuff out of there, and they pull her up and out of the rest of the way. And she goes on about Prince Brilliant's down there and this and that. And they're like, we don't believe you. You're crazy. Eustace tries to fit up through the hole, but he can't fit. So nobody else can fit either, because he's a boy, and Rillian's uh, a young man, and so they're stuck down there, and the horses definitely aren't going to fit. No, no. <laughs> so meanwhile, Eustace thinks Jill has been taken by somebody. Now, remember way back when, his reaction, though he was a kinder person than when he very first started, his reaction was they were fighting about a lot of things, right, all along the way. And you say this, and I'm going to disagree with you. I'd rather do this. You say this, and now he can only think, I've got to defend her. Right? He has changed through this journey. He has changed. He's trying to get his sword up and out of the hole, and Jill's up there saying, hey, you got all these people are down there, and all those horses down there, and all this, and they're like, you guys are crazy. You crawl out of this hole, there's nothing down there. She finally convinces them enough, and they get a bunch of dwarfs, and they get a bunch of uh, badgers, and they go, and they start to dig, and dig, and dig, and dig, all right? Now think about what Eustace, and I, I want to go to Psalm chapter number 73. Because Eustace and Jill are feeling very different at this moment. Eustace feels like every cavern is just another dark cavern and we're never going to get out. This lady's realm 
in the underworld, Psalm chapter 73, this lady's realm in the underworld goes on and on and on. And if you have ever felt like, how are all the bad things happening in this world? What's going on with this world? Why doesn't God, if God's that powerful, why doesn't he just come and crush it? Why doesn't he fix it? Why doesn't he do, isn't he powerful enough to do it? David had the very same question. We're going to read Psalm chapter 73, and we're going to go all the way through verse number 19. 1 through 19. Please. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Compasseth, or circles around them. About as a chain, violence covered them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart to wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak properly. They set their mouth against the head. Chastened or punished. All right, this is David, and he says, I watch the world, and I watch the people around me. I have been trying to do right, and I almost fell into this trap. I almost fell into the trap of thinking that all of the evil people out in the world, the people who will not have anything to do with God, they prosper. They do well. They're all the rich ones. They're all the strong ones. They beat down people. They take advantage of people. They prosper in what they do. And no one stops them. They seem to stand up, and yet I go out, and every day I'm chastised. Or I am basically punished every day, and I'm the one trying to do right. 
I'm struggling and I'm fighting and I seem like I just can't get ahead. And yet the people that I watch that do wrong, that don't care about God, seem to just fly and have a great time. Why is that, God? And that's the way Eustace feels. This woman's evil will just go on and on and on forever, and we will probably never get out of this. We'll never get out of this cavern. We're just stuck, and there's another cavern, and another cavern, and another cavern, and we'll never see the end of it. And what David says in that psalm is he says, Then I went to church, and I realized that there will be an end to their evil. The things that you see that are bad that are happening today will not go on forever. And you can trust God that although there may be discomfort and there may be some pain and there may be some things along the way, you can trust God first that he will protect you and put your foot on solid ground. And he says, there'll be a thousand that fall on all around you. But if you trust in God, you will stand firm. God will protect you in the midst of a world that is falling apart. In the midst of a world when you're surrounded by evil. God will protect you. God will do that when he knows you stand for him. Right? We learned of a little, we went on vacation and we learned about a little village in the middle of Tennessee. And that little village in the middle of Tennessee. Oh, I don't know what the name of it was. I know it's not Nashville. It is not Nashville. That is not a little village. So this is a place that used to be a town of a small town of people. Probably no more than 200 people in this little That's town. Not that small. It's pretty small, though, when you're talking about towns that are much bigger these days. This town, we went to visit these old buildings there and there was a church we went to and that church in the middle of Tennessee in the year 1860 took a stand and said we will not fight for the things that the South is fighting for. Now they're in the middle of Tennessee. That is right smack dab in the middle of the South. There's southern states on the north of you, there's southern states to the west of you, to the east of you, and to the south of you. You have nowhere to go. But they took a stand and said, we will not do it because it's not right. They believed that it was not right. And with that, that church and those churches in that valley actually opened back up after the Civil War and were strong for many years after that. God blessed them and protected them. Right? He protected them as they stood for a cause and they said, we believe slavery is wrong, we believe it says it's wrong in the Bible, and we will not fight, though they be our brothers all around us. And they sent a group, they, they sent a group of southern soldiers up and killed their leader because they didn't believe. They wouldn't do it. Right? So, Though we might see pain, God will protect us through the whole thing. If you stand for what is right, do not be afraid 
because God will bring things that are not good to an end eventually. And what David says in that psalm is it will be suddenly. One day, you'll think they're climbing, climbing, climbing that mountain, and all of a sudden, boom. Their feet slipped right out from under them, and they're gone. It seems as though people will get away with things forever. Just like Eustace, don't get discouraged. Now, all of the, the dwarfs and the badgers dig him up, pull him out, and then he finally he's swinging his sword around, and they're like, what are you doing? Right? They pull him out, throw him on the ground, and he realizes he's in Narnia. He's made it. One second before, he believed it was more darkness and more evil, and now all of a sudden, phew, there it is. It's gone. It would have been a funny thing. So here's the thing. It said Jill was in that world for about 10 minutes waiting for them to dig it out, and she almost forgot about the whole underworld altogether. Almost forgot altogether. Romans chapter 14. Let's turn there. Here's why she forgot almost altogether about that dark world and all of the things she felt. Romans chapter 14, verse number 17. Wherever we left off, please. Verse 17 of Romans 14. I don't know where we are. Oh, you can do it this time. For the kingdom of God is not You see, there's a, there's a great difference between what the world offers. The world offers physical things, physical pleasures. And they're good. There's good things about the world. How many of you like to eat? I think everybody likes to eat. <laughs> some favorite food and maybe many favorite foods and that's fine and that's good. Now, when you really have something sad, something terrible happen in your life, how much does that food help? A lot. A little. It helps me a lot. Does it really take your sadness away? Maybe for a moment, and that's true. There's a little pleasure in eating your favorite food. Okay, five minutes, which is which is fine. As you, but here's the thing. We'll say you like uh, chicken. All right, you love chicken. Your favorite thing, right? So, if you're really sad and you eat a piece of chicken. And it helps you for five minutes. Not think about it and you say, mm, this is really good. It's more like an entire plate full of chicken. You're, okay. You eat a whole plate full of chicken and it helps you for five minutes. Yep, now, in five minutes, in ten minutes, you're sad again. Because reality comes back, right? Actually, it was after the sixth minute I realized what was happening behind me. Because I was 
So, all right. So then, it was kind of funny. after you eat that, can you eat another plate of chicken? Probably. Auntie Heather made an entire like boiled dish of this, and then she deep fried the rest. So, of it. you keep eating chicken. You're gonna get fat. Eventually, it ain't gonna help. It's really not gonna help your sadness. It might be temporary. It might be a small thing that helps you for a short time, but it is not something that's lasting. It is real. Food is real, right? You could eat 300 pounds of chicken in one day. Yikes, I wouldn't go that far. I would not either, and I think you would get sick way before 300 pounds. But what I'm saying is no matter how much chicken you ate, it would not get you to the point of not being sad anymore. Unless you right? <laughs> so, still, not going to help you. But what God's, and that's what the world does. It offers you things that are temporary. The things the world gives you are temporary. Food is temporary. You're hungry a short time afterwards. Ten minutes sometimes. Oh, I'm hungry again. I gotta eat something else. What am I looking for? Because you're not satisfied. Cutting your hair right? is not always temporary. You can shave your entire head bald. Now that's not really temporary. Well, it is temporary because it's gonna grow back. It's gonna you grow back. So here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. The things of God, it says, are not like that. The things of God are righteousness, peace, and joy that come from the Holy Spirit. How much, can you have too much joy? Pretty sure not, right? If you're feeling it, great, and you're feeling better, even better. Not unless you're really joyful and you still have to if it's If it's really, really true, peace. All the chicken in the world will not give you real peace. But peace, but peace is something that will last in your heart. So if you want something from God that's really, it is the things of God that really last. And the things of this earth don't. And so when you begin to focus much more on the things of God in this life, about how do I get peace in my life, about my decisions, about my thoughts, about my uh, guilt, about the things that I hold inside of my heart that I won't talk to anybody about. How do I get peace about that? How do I get real righteousness? How do I have joy in my life? When you begin to seek those things through God, you will find that all of the other things, even the plates of chicken, will fade away as necessary things to to cover up pain. Because that's all those do. Things in this world cover things up. When you begin to focus on the things of God, they go to the root of things. Because God in His nature goes to the root of who you are in your spirit. He doesn't start on the leaves and the outside. He starts in the root and says, that's where I change you. Right? So you get to that part and you realize that God's things last much, much better, bigger, longer. And we have a song that we sometimes sing in church. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory 
and grace. As you begin to focus on God, the other stuff blurs away. Not that you don't need to eat anymore, and you might enjoy a plate of chicken, but you don't need it for medicine. Nope. Don't need it. Did you know that in the 1900s? Do you have... Was it the 1900s ketchup was considered medicine? I'm sure it was. Some people still think so. So, there is, what I'm telling you is there is nothing in this world that the world can offer that can give you good things. But when you focus on God, those things fade away. And the right path in life gives you such a trajectory in that the world fades and fades and fades. And you don't care about the ownership of things. And you don't care about all the stupid things people do around you. And you forget about all the dumb decisions that the leaders make out there. And you focus on Christ and you say, whatever you need, whatever you want me to do, I'm going there. I don't care where I am, what the world is like politically today, what the world does around me, what my job does. I'm focused on you. And if you want me here, I'll be here. And you walk that line until the day that you go to be home with the Lord. And it's a day where you're in more comfort, more joy than you have even been in this life. And that's a piece that we'll get to in just a moment. All right? So here it is. Fill your life with kindness and all the things that you need to see. Now, one passage I want to read out of this book. A short passage that once Prince Rillian is out, they realize that they bow down to him Oh, our king, he's, he's our prince, he's been gone for such a long time, we never thought he'd be back, and he tells the story. Meanwhile, Jill and Eustace are sleeping. And while they slept, Prince Rillian was talking over the whole adventure with older and wiser beasts and dwarfs. And now they all saw what it meant. How a wicked witch... Doubtless the same kind as the White Witch, who had, who had brought the Great Winter on Narnia long ago, had contrived the whole thing, first killing Rillian's mother and enchanting Rillian himself. And they saw how she had dug right under Narnia and was going to break out and rule it through Rillian. So she was going to actually break out into his own country. She always said, oh, we're going to another people, another place. And she was going to use him against his own people. And that is often what happens when you're enslaved by evil things, by temptation and sin. We get used against our people around us and hurt the people around us. And how he never dreamed that the country of which she spake of made him king king in name, but really her slave, was his own country. And from the part, from the children's part of the story, they saw how she was in league and friendship with the dangerous giants of Harfang. And the lesson of it all is, your highness, said the oldest dwarf, that those northern witches always mean the same thing, but in every age they have a different plan for getting it. Satan's plan since he fell from heaven has been the very same plan. What does Satan want to do to us? 
Well, first he wants to take away our peace, our righteousness, our joy. And he is against life. He is against kindness. He is against every form of self-control. He'd rather that you do everything the way you want to do it. Because he knows if you do, you'll get so wrapped up in yourself that you won't even think about anybody else. He is against God's people. He is against families. He is against churches. He is against marriage. He's against all the things that God put together and said, this is good. God created those things. God made those ways and said, do this. And so you've seen the spirit of things that are against God or anti-God or anti-Christ. You have seen the spirit of anti-Christ happen from the beginning. And so who does Satan always pick on? What nation has he picked on or gone and tried to attack and eliminate time after time after time again? God's nation, which is Israel. Even to this day, he is trying to eliminate them. There are countries surrounding that. Russia is trying to get through Ukraine. Why do they want to get through Ukraine? They want to go to Israel. Iran wants to take Israel out. It's not a new thought. 60, 70 years ago, it was the Germans. Before that, it was the Russians with the pogroms. And it was God's people being again and again and again scattered around the world, persecuted. That's not because mankind hates Jewish people. It is because Satan drives the spirit of Antichrist. And he attacks the same things. He attacks the things of God consistently. He attacks God's people. He attacks God's institutions like the church and marriage. He attacks them again and again and again. And what do you find in societies where Satan has gained a foothold? You find marriages fall apart. Churches get weak. Families get weak. And almost everything good gets weak. And evil grows. And more and more, and life becomes of no value. You've seen that all over the place. Even recently, life is less and less value. Eh, if a few people have to die for this cause, we're going to do it. And that's somebody making the choice for those people. Not people standing up for what's right and dying for that. But somebody saying, well, if some people have to die to make sure we get what we want, that's okay. And that's evil. That is a spirit of Antichrist. And it says in the book of 1 John um, that the spirit of Antichrist has always been since Satan started and is now today 
And in the end times, we will see a person come out that will that we call Antichrist, that will be that person that personifies all of those evil things. Be very crafty, be a liar, right from the beginning. You'll know it. No truth. But it says he'll be crafty enough where he will almost be able to deceive God's people. So he'll be very smart and very knowledgeable, even probably about the Bible. He will know things. But he will lead people and he will get them to a point where he will tell them he will bring peace and joy and prosperity and people will have to look for it, right? What do people want right now? They want their prosperity back. They're watching as it's dwindling away. They want their joy. They want to be left alone. They want to do what they want to do. They want to be free. And so there will be someday... Our nation, probably with the nations of the rest of the world, will say, we'll follow. And that's when it brings down to the Antichrist himself, the personification of that spirit of Antichrist. The world begins to be set up. Now, God may do amazing things. It may change things for some time. But you see the real focus of evil, right? There is no regard for human life. And you could say, why do these shootings happen? Because there's no regard for human life in the spirit of Antichrist. It means nothing. Why can't people tell the truth? What is wrong with it? They can't see the truth. Because there's no regard for the truth. Satan is against all things that are God. Why don't people love their families anymore? Why can't they do that? Because that's not what God is. That's not what Satan is interested in. That's God's idea. Families falling apart. Marriages falling apart. Meaning nothing. Here's actual literal proof. It's been proven that college students went out and they asked about most people. Like, if they, they were disowned, like, most church voting people, if they were disowned or kid, if they were called a sapiens. I'm sure people have do weird things. I'm sure. So, here's the thing. Know that those things will happen. But focus on God. Right? The witches come and they do the same. They're looking to do the same thing. They want to take over. They want power. They want to... They want to overcome all the good things in Narnia, witch after witch after witch. They do it a different way. One of them put winter on the world, right? And that was in The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. One of them captured the prince and tried to dig from underground. But either way, it doesn't matter. It's the same spirit. And that is exactly what you see in the spirit of Antichrist. So, finally... That is a question. We don't know that answer, and maybe God would have saved them another way, but wouldn't it be better, and wasn't it better, that they obeyed and went on the journey and did it? All right? So, to wrap this up, uh, Rillian goes back. They call his father back from sea. From the sea. Actually, Aslan meets his father out in the sea somewhere. And they don't know whether it was a vision or not. 
But he says, you're going to go back and you're going to see your son. And so he heads back. All right? He gets there and Jill and Eustace are standing back watching as in the solemn moments they take King Caspian and they carry him on kind of a stretcher down the ramp off the ship. King Caspian, with the last gasp of his breath, sees his son, Prince Rillian, who then becomes king, embraces him, and with his last moment, is gone from this world, from Narnia. The funeral music plays. And all of a sudden, Jill and Eustace say, I want to go home. I don't want to be here anymore. That was their best friend. That was at least Eustace's best friend, right? Aslan is directly behind them, watching. And he takes them back to a mountain. And on that mountain, there's that stream. Remember that stream where Jill took a drink, right? And all the threads swallow them whole. And all of a sudden, they watch, they see what's happening, and there they still hear the funeral music playing. But they're not in front of them. And under the rippling water appears old King Caspian. Aslan tells Eustace, go in the thicket. You'll find a big thorn. He takes out a big thorn. It says it's almost a foot long. Big, sharp thorn. Go and jam it into my paw. And Eustace says, Do I have to? Yes. You must. So he jams it into his paw. And out comes a drop of blood. Drips into the water. And all of a sudden, dead King Caspian takes all that age and it just washes away from him. And he becomes a young man again. Not with a real age, but just in his prime. Not like he's 22 or 36 or whatever. But in his prime, he has passed over into eternity. He's now in Aslan's country. He gets up as that younger man and said, and recognizes Eustace and recognizes Jill. This is fantastic. I'm so glad you're here. You're in Aslan's country. Now the drop of blood, remember this. It says that without the shedding of blood, there shall be no remission of sin. Without the drop of blood in the water, without Aslan's blood, he could not pass over. But with Aslan's blood, he could pass over. And so he passes over, and he thinks that Eustace and Jill are with him. Right? In Aslan's country forever. It's fantastic. They've passed over too. And Aslan says, no, not this time. Next time you come back, you'll be here forever. But now you have to go back to your world. 
And the young king, Caspian, says, I want to go see their world. Is that wrong? Well, you can't want wrong things because all of the sadness and sorrow and sin is wiped away. Revelation tells us that God will wipe away all their tears. When we get to the place in heaven, there will be many sorrows before we get there. But God wipes away all our tears. Through it, he comes and he takes away the sadness and the sorrows that came with living in this earth. And he will bring about just the longevity of joy, peace, patience, self-control, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. He brings those things about. And that's what we will live with forever. So he sends Eustace and Jill and King Caspian gets five minutes in their world. He sends them back to where they started from. Now, if you remember, they were being chased by a bunch of bullies in the beginning in the experiment house, right? And this was a very liberal thinking house that had a lot of ideas that didn't really work. What happens when they meet King Caspian? Well, Aslan arms them with swords. Oh. And Jill with a bullwhip said, go take care of those bullies, but don't use, these are not warriors, he said, don't use the sharp sides of your swords, just use the flat side, whack them. <laughs> I can't believe you would get <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just imagine the looks on their faces when she comes out. Now, when they do this, Aslan blows away this brick wall, and all of a sudden the kids are running up to this brick wall, which is where Eustace and Jill were standing when they left on this great journey. Aslan turns around, not to see his face, but just to see the hind end of a lion. And they look at that lion. And they are all screwed. They are scared to death. And off comes. Eustace and Jill with their swords and bullwhip and Caspian gets his couple minutes in that world and those like, people change and there's a woman that's a head of this experiment house and she runs out hearing all this stuff and all these kids are running yelling about a lion she goes and sees Aslan and sees them and all these swords and things like that and runs and calls the police <laughs> Try to get them. And she sounds like a crazy woman. And when the police show up, the, gone. there's nobody there. She's crazy. That's what they probably think. So, did Jill and Eustace ever move from the spot where they started? Not really, no. They were just That's the thought behind it. There's something a little deeper. Your spiritual journeys don't necessarily take you to a different physical place, but they change you inside. And so passing into Narnia on that great adventure and all the things they do and they see and all those things, your experience with God doesn't necessarily move you in your life from point A to point B will say you're in school. You're still in school after you've had an experience with God. And you walk in, you're going to go the very next day. But 
how you attack the world is with Aslan at your back. He's right there. And the world sees you differently after you've had an experience with God. The very same way. He says, go back to your world and learn me by my name there. When you learn me by my name there, you will learn how to live. And that's where we live here in this world. And Christ is our Redeemer. And Christ is the one whom we can go at with all things in this life. And gives us strength to stand up. So, we see this book, it's an incredible turnaround, and we realize, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does Jill and Eustace ever leave that spot? Maybe not. But when they stood there before their spiritual journey, they did not have the strength to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They definitely not the sword moment. And afterwards, their swords, their weapons... We're spiritual. Right? They had the words of Aslan. They had the things in their heart about their journeys that they took. And they understood differently. The problem was the very same problem they faced before they left. But they attacked it differently. And so that is the point of the silver chair. Of one, one of the many points of the silver chair. But in that their situation didn't change, but what was inside of them did. And from that, they made a different path. And they won, and they had influence, and they changed that whole school. If you read the book, it talks about some of the changes that happens, right, to the school, because they bring Aslan there. They bring God with them. So, you bring your <laughs> No, we are done. 